Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Dominique Hildebrand. I'm a photo editor here at National Geographic, and I'm a co-lead of our LGBTQ employee resource group. To celebrate Pride, we're doing something special on Overheard. We're handing the mic over to two National Geographic explorers who really love nature. I'm not going to say that I hug trees, but sometimes I just like to be embedded in nature. So, yeah. <laughs> if you were going to hug trees, nobody here would judge you. I know. It's National <laughs> Geographic. I feel like there's a lot of tree huggers thank, in the building. Thank not you. <laughs> Today we're meeting Rudiger Ortiz Alvarez. My pronouns are he, him. Most people call me Rudy. I'm a biologist and a doctor in ecology based in Spain. And Christine Wilkinson. I am a postdoc at UC Berkeley and at the California Academy of Sciences. Um, my pronouns are she, they, and I use uh, social ecological frameworks to understand the interactions between people and wildlife and to share that science through story. Rudy and Christine have totally different research interests. Rudy is a microbiologist who also records soundscapes in a fascinating rainforest in the Canary Islands. And Christine studies large carnivores, including spotted hyenas in Kenya and coyotes in California. They're each working toward a deeper understanding of how nature and humans interact. Rudy and Christine are also both members of the National Geographic Queer and Allies Explorer Group. We'll learn more about their research and how their identity makes them the scientists they are today. A lot of us um, who may have come from disadvantaged backgrounds or backgrounds where we weren't accepted by our families because of some part of our identity, queer or otherwise, basically built our relationships with nature because we were escaping that. Um, and we ended up becoming these maybe um, protectors of the earth because of our identity um, and because of our relationship with that. This is Overheard at National Geographic, a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have at Nat Geo and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, beautiful world. Coming up, we'll celebrate pride. Learn why studying hyenas can lead you to drive around with 100 pounds of rotting meat on a sweltering day and hear a unique whistling language that shows how humans and nature are constantly adapting to each other. Rudy and Christine will take it away after the break. But first, fuel your curiosity with a free one-month trial subscription to National Geographic Premium. You'll have unlimited access on any device, anywhere, ad-free, with their app that lets you download stories to read offline. Explore every page ever published with the Century of Digital Archives at your fingertips. Check it all out for free at natgeo.com slash explore more. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Christine, I've seen your TikTok and your Instagram videos many times. Uh, you have this amazing series called uh, Curious Natural. I love it. Uh, but could you tell me a little bit more about the series? Uh, what is the broad scope? What is, what is it about? Yeah, so Queer is Natural is a series that I started in Pride 2022, um, where I actually attempted to make a video every day of Pride 2022, <laughs> an absurd <laughs> endeavor, to try and highlight uh, homosexuality and sort of gender bending in the animal kingdom. Happy Pride Month, y'all. There are estimated to be over 1,000 species who engage in same-sex coupling or whose sex roles aren't exactly what you learned about in basic biology. For Pride Month, let's highlight these queer animals and talk about how being queer is actually natural. How do you get the idea for this? How do you get the idea for Queer is Natural? Yeah, so I come from a, a deeply religious and homophobic family. Um, and the folks in sort of those realms often say that being queer or gay or anything like that is an unnatural way of being. Um, but the animal kingdom has shown us that there are at least a thousand, if not more, animal species that exhibit some form of queerness. Um, so the idea behind Queer is Natural is to show that queer is natural. It's all around us. And just because we haven't um, studied it in Western science, mainly because Western science was created by cis white guys, yeah. doesn't mean that it's not right there. Yeah, it's interesting how embedded it is in the society, right? Like, oh, but mm, these things are not natural. We are not humans. We are not supposed to do these things. And it's like, okay, it's everywhere, literally. Like, we just need to learn about it. <laughs> right. When, when was the, the that moment where you first learned that uh, these behaviors existed? That um, what when was that aha moment? Like, wow, this is a thing, and it can really really be tied to my identity. It's a good question. I'm not sure if I had an aha moment, but it was. You know, I've done a lot of work with spotted hyenas, which are a very uh, gender-bending sort of animal and kind of defy what we know about most uh, social large mammals, uh, which mm -hmm. is that, you know, the females are a lot larger than the males and they dominate the males and they kind of make all the decisions. Um, and I, I think that along with the hyenas and many of the other animals that I've worked with don't kind of fit into these neat, clean boxes, right? Yeah, that's right. So I've been wanting to, to say something to my family that they cannot refute, And uh, it turned into Queer as Natural. Your handle on social media is Scrappy Naturalist. <laughs> What does it mean? I'm Spanish. I sometimes don't get the full thing. So can you tell me a little bit more about it? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I think that uh, English speakers also might not know what it means. <laughs> so it's fine. So I grew up in Queens, New York. And when I was a little kid, I um, basically like would be watching nature shows a lot. You know, Jeff Corwin and... Um, Steve Irwin and all those guys on TV who are all white dudes, right? And I was like, how can I be like them? I don't know how because I'm not that. But I would run around Queens and I'd try to uh, follow cockroaches and cicadas and pigeons and squirrels and talk about them as if I had my own show. Uh, and, like, <laughs> That's amazing. Come to the table, the dinner table with like cicadas, like plastered to my shirt, <laughs> um, which my mom hated. Um, and so 
even since then, I always wanted to make like a TV show called The Scrappy Naturalist where, you know, someone who maybe was unconventional was running around kind of uh, talking about and exploring the animals that are right in our backyards that might be misunderstood or undervalued. I love this. Uh, I hope you eventually do this show. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan. That's the plan. I hope so, too. I hope so. Um, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about your, your fieldwork. You said, well, you have this project involving hyenas in Kenya. So what attracted you to hyenas in the first place? So I had done a lot of work on human-wildlife conflicts, so the negative interactions mm -hmm. between people and wildlife, in East Africa um, starting in 2010. And I started to realize that a lot of the work that was being done on carnivore conflict where I worked in East Africa was on uh, animals like lions and, and leopards, so like the big, pretty the big kitties, ones. you know? <laughs> and uh, But then anecdotally, people were saying, well, spotted hyenas are actually doing a lot more damage for us. Um, and then nobody was studying how they were interacting with people. Um, so my thought was, how can I more fully understand what this apex predator that no one seems to want to study, how it's actually adapting to and surviving in landscapes that are highly dominated by people, um, just because folks hadn't really done that before. Hyenas look amazing. Like they can do many things and they are like a sur survivor animal, right? Yeah, they are amazing. And they're like female led. Ooh. Girl power. Um, and then we also do GPS tracking. So um, we'll, we'll capture the hyenas and put GPS collars on them. Okay, so we have finished processing number 1626. And we're about to let her recover. And she looks pretty healthy. She doesn't really have any parasites or anything. Her teeth look good. And she has had cubs since we last saw her. We, we called her when she was hadn't had any cubs before. So, yeah, very exciting morning for us. And we had In one blog post, you described working with a pile of raw meat on a car called a meat mobile. <laughs> Can you tell me more about that? Um, when I was out in the field in Kenya last year, Um, trying to take GPS collars off of the spotted hyenas because um, that's the ethical thing to do and the collars were going to run out of battery. Um, I was fortunate, or unfortunate, uh, to be gifted as a vegetarian, by the way, well, a pescatarian, uh, of hundreds of pounds of rotting cow meat to be able to tie securely to trees and shrubs um, to call the hyenas in and get them to stick around a bit longer and find the one with the collar, dart it, get the collar off. Um, but the problem is, it's not like we have a place to store the meat. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh I don't know what that is in Celsius. No worries. It's high. It's um, high. Every day, uh, we, it was a big drought. Um, and so my friend Simon graciously offered me his car, which was a lot bigger than mine, to be able to store all of the meat in. So mm. basically, the decollaring operation was four or five days long. Oof. And just even by like the second hour of the, of the first day, we had like flies forming on the meat and it smelled exactly as you might imagine. Oh my God. Um, and by the, the last day, we had oh, all sorts of ecosystem back there. <laughs> uh, and, and the, you know, life finds a way. <laughs> life finds a way. The worst part was that uh, because of the drought, there was like an enormous amount of dust everywhere. So we would close the windows a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which oh, <laughs> was oh terrible. Um, <laughs> but it was really great for catching the hyenas. Yeah. <laughs> um, you do basically most of your field work in Kenya, right? But you're based in, in California. Like California doesn't have nat native hyenas, but it does have coyotes. So 
Coyotes are hyenas are both animals that had a bad reputation, like we've been discussing. So is it tough to make other people care about these two animals, these mm, less liked ones? Absolutely. So something about misunderstood animals or vilified animals like coyotes and hyenas is that many of them, if not most, are misunderstood because they are generalists and they can adapt to the various things that we humans throw mm -hmm. at them. And in so doing, they kind of stick around and persist alongside us and then get into things that piss us off. Um, and <laughs> and if you just like, you know, anything from rats to cockroaches to, you know, whatever, um, those are all things that have managed to make it work despite what people are doing and that pisses us off. Um, and so it's really, really tough when not only maybe some things are happening, like, you know, spotted hyenas are killing livestock sometimes or um, coyotes are uh, occasionally getting into your trash or eating your dog, mm, right? Yeah. Like things are happening. But also because people have grown up hearing all of these stories about these animals that are deeply embedded in their values and their perceptions about how those animals work on the landscape and how they yeah. should be treated. Um, and so getting at, at the root of the issue really takes getting into people's um, kind of hearts and minds and values and listening to what they're experiencing and combining that with education. What do you want the people to understand actually about these animals? What is their takeaway that you would say, hey, you need to know this? So animals that have a bad reputation might be, well, I understand them better now, so I don't know, may I, I may change my relationship with them. I think that uh, there's a few things. So a lot of the stories that people are taught about these animals are related with myths, right? Mm -hmm. So things like uh, people often think coyotes are purposely teasing their dog to get their, mm. to lure their dog in to be attacked. That is not what's happening, right? If you get some basic understandings of um, behavior of coyotes and hyenas, you can see like, oh, actually like they're protecting the den or coyotes are playful and like they are just trying to play and don't let your dog do that. But like they're not trying to like Lord, they're not yeah. doing some trickster <laughs> thing, right? But those are those are woven together with the myths around the animals. The other thing I think is really important to help people understand is that these animals can be benefiting them. You know, for instance, coyotes are, are out in the cities eating rodents that we consider to be pests, which I have a huge problem with that word mm. pest. It's another value-laden <laughs> word. Um, but, you know, some of these are disease vectors, right? Like rats are disease vectors yeah. and coyotes eat them. Um, so just kind of showing that um, a lot of the things about how they can adapt to us, like the ways that they've kind of pissed us off because they've adapted to us and stuck around, are actually rooted in really, really cool behavioral traits and adaptations that they have. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, hey, Rudy. Hi, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> Hi again. So let's start. I love Twitter. Um, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> so I want to start with something that I saw on your Twitter. Um, and I'm just going to show you a tweet from uh -huh. you. And can you just translate it oh uh, for us after you read it in Spanish? El próximo día que me escape del centro de Madrid, estoy por rebozarme en tierra del campo. A lo mejor es un poco drástico, pero es viernes, estoy impulsivo y necesito bosquecitos. 
So, <laughs> this was just, uh, I, I was a little bit tired that day, so what I wrote was, the next day that I escaped the center of Madrid, I'm about to mm, just get dirt in my skin uh, with <laughs> dirt from the, from, from the countryside. Maybe it's a little bit drastic, but it's, it's Friday, I'm impulsive, and I need little forests. And the tweet that I was sharing, because this, this is not random, was a tweet that this was discussing the biodiversity uh, in urban soils versus um, forest soils. So the microbes that we have in the skin and within, within ourselves, uh, the microbiome is better when we are in a natural environment, like forest and stuff. So that was like, I, I need to get out of the city and I need to go to the forest <laughs> and just, you know... <laughs> cover yourself in dirt. Cover myself in dirt. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that is awesome. That was the tweet. Okay, so did you go and uh, cover yourself in forest dirt? Let's look at your follow-up tweet. Mm, yeah, the follow-up tweet says, I was not bluffing. <laughs> and it's basically, it's basically me, me laying down in, in the floor. Um, in my hometown. My hometown is like one hour away from Madrid. It's near the mountains. And I, I always go there to relax, you know, and clear my mind. And I love that you followed through. I totally would have joined you, actually, by the way. You would be so, so welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you just explain a little bit about your connection to nature? It seems like uh, like what you just said, you, you do that kind of often. Yeah, well, I've been, I, I was born in, a, in, in San Lorenzo de Escorial. This is a town uh, near the mountains in Madrid, as I said. Only 10 minutes away from my house, I have this <clears throat> great forest and this great um, pine tree area that I always loved to, to go when I was a kid. Uh, I used to go there with my mother and just see amphibians and frogs and, you know, looking at nature from, the, from a very small age. Yeah, so it feels like you, you've had a connection to nature for, for quite a long time and you have your own ways of connecting to nature. I'm curious why you've decided for your National Geographic work to focus on what nature sounds like for that connection. How did you first get interested in that? Yeah, as I said, sometimes when I live in, in, in cities and stuff, um, I get like this necessity of going outdoors. So I was by the end of my PhD. As I mentioned, I used to work in microbial ecology. It was okay, I liked it. But I was a little bit tired by the end, I have to be honest. And a friend of mine uh, and I decided, okay, let's go for a trip. Let's go to somewhere wild. Let's go to Borneo. And there we um, we did like a canopy walk, which is like they have these metal structures uh, in the rainforest, so you just can go up and see the whole the whole thing. And we were there at dusk because we wanted to see flying squirrels. So apparently, their maximum activity is at dusk, like many other animals. And I was not expecting to hear what I heard next. So suddenly, this orchestra exploded out of nowhere, and I was like what is happening around me right now? Like, uh, all of this is not random. My scientific side came up, right? Like, this has patterns, this has things that I want to know how it works. That is absolutely beautiful. You didn't tell us whether you saw flying squirrels, though. Mm, I saw them. They were amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and so for your for that work that was Nat Geo-funded, um, I saw that you're releasing a film yes. based on that project in the Canary Islands. You're going to be famous. I'm super excited well, I'm for not you. I'm going to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about where you went in the Canary Islands and why you picked that place? Sure thing. So I was in Borneo when I had this like aha moment, let's say. But there was another piece to the puzzle that I wanted to develop. And that was like, okay, this orchestra of sounds in the nature is amazing. How do we fit in this orchestra, right? So I started to think about it, like our relationship with sound and particularly about our communication. We emit sound. We are. We speak. We communicate with that. Does it fit somewhere in the 
in the natural landscape. So there is one place uh, in the Canary Islands, this island is called La Gomera, and they have these two main, com main components that I needed to study. Um, first, an old rainforest is the oldest forest in Europe. It's called Laure Silva. And then Silva Gomero, which is a whistle language that people use to communicate in the island. So it's like, this is the place where everything is connected. So that's why I decided, okay, I need to study this and I want to make a broader case about how do we relate with nature through sound. I would love to visit at some point already without you even telling me about it. <laughs> but can you please paint a picture of La Gomera for me? What's it like? The fascinating thing about La Gomera is that uh, it's like at the same latitude as the Saharan Desert. And in the center of the island, we have this old rainforest. Okay, this, that was not supposed to be there. It's there because there are a lot of mists and clouds that uh, make humidity optimal for this forest to grow. Uh, it's super, super steep. Uh, walking in the island is a challenge. <laughs> and like, you have to be a very good hiker, I'd say. And you can imagine that um, the is very, it has a lot of contrast. It's like a mosaic. Like in the center, it's very humid. You have the lower silva, but in the other... Outside is super dry sometimes. There are a lot of contrasts in between seasons. So it's a very dynamic island. I like to consider it like a musical island. Ooh. I would like to show you how the center of the island sounds. So what you're hearing is a, is a chorus of mainly blackbirds. This area is also close to some towns, so you are listening to some dogs as well. But the complexity of blackbirds in this case, it's quite astonishing. That is so fascinating. I need to like get a like an hour-long track of that from you. I can share that with <laughs> you. I have, I, have, I have many hours of it <laughs> <laughs> recorded. Um, I just want to go back to what you were saying about that whistling language, Silbo sure. Gomero. Can you tell me more about how it works? Yeah, so Silbo is a whistle language um, or a communication system. There is some debate about that. Um, so people uh, back in La Gomera, as I said, it's a very steep island. It's not easy to just walk uh, five kilometers because you, go to, you need to go a lot of ups and downs. So for them, it made sense to just, just say a whistle and... It, the sound travels like five kilometers. So you can transmit an, a message to the whole island in a, in, ten, in 20 minutes. You send you, um, The whole island could know what you're trying to tell them. And it's not like a code, so it's not like Morse. They, it's actually Spanish. They are whistling in Spanish, right? Like it's actual words. So what you just heard were two sisters arranging a meeting at 4 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> these are, uh, you just heard Paula and Zaida Correa. These are two sisters who live in La Gomera and were amazing with us, showing, uh, showing us how Silvo works and how they use it. So a big uh, high five for them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you like Silvo? I would love to learn it. I know that I, I can't even whistle like, nor, like the kind of whistling we do in the West. <laughs> Um, can you tell me whether there's been times where you weren't sure if it was a person or like a blackbird mm. imitating a person? Uh, what does happen is that there are a lot of tourism to the island and they all want to hear about Silbo. So there's a lot of um, shows and, okay, 
oh, you take a Whistler, you take it to the rainforest and you do like this communicating thing and they, they actually show that they can understood the messages. And I bet that there are some words that are common in these shows because I recorded one blackbird who was actually saying one word in, by whistling, like in silbo. When I first heard that file, I was like, am I really listening to, a, to is this a blackbird or what, what the hell am I listening to? So it's very short, but it's like, <laughs> that's Laura Silva. So Laura Silva is the type of forest. So it made sense that in demonstrations, they whistle Laura Silva. I'm kind of disappointed they weren't like saying bacon or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I also think they can say Paco. I, I cannot prove that, but I, I'm pretty sure that I got a blackbird saying, hey, Paco. That is fantastic. I feel like a lot of the work that I do or that I've done is very much about um, alleviating negative interactions between mm -hmm. people and nature um, and, and shaping them into positive interactions. But this feels like um, a really lovely kind of marriage of people and nature. And, and can you tell me more about what you want people to take away from that? Yeah, um, we live in cities, most of us. Like 55% of the total population and 75% of the Western population live in cities. Okay, so um, we are not exposed to these soundscapes anymore. And there was a time when, when we were connected to this, we made up a language to communicate through the ravines of an island, right? Like, I think it's quite impressive, right, what, um, what we could achieve. It's an ecological adaptation. And I don't know, I just wanted people to understand that we need to reconnect with, with nature in some way, right? And I thought that I could achieve that with sound. That is, it has an empathetic um, component that other forms of storytelling do not have. So that's why I wanted to do this project. And if I could say something, Christine, and for you, maybe after we finish this conversation, is just to go for a moment outside, pause, and just listen. Just see where you are at, what's happening around you, and just think about it. So, Christine. Can I ask you about an essay that you wrote earlier this year? Um, you described your identity as a black biracial queer scientist, and you wrote that embracing intersectionality has influenced your research. Can you say more about what you exactly mean? Yeah, absolutely. Just as a background about that essay, since you're <laughs> laughing about it earlier, <laughs> is that I, when I applied for that um, award, I did not read the instructions fully, and I did not realize this was going to be published in a major journal. If I got it. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, so, and it's a very personal essay, I have to it's say. It's very vulnerable, and and it's just out there. Um, but that's okay. But yeah, I think in a few ways, my intersectionality and identities have uh, influenced the way that I approach my research and I approach uh, my relationship with nature. And I've really been able to span a lot of different levels of understanding of these really complex kaleidoscopic situations that make up human-wildlife interactions. And mm. um, I've had a lot of empathy for different groups of people that are dealing with these issues. Or um, I, I feel like my um, identities as a Black and queer person can be reflected in a lot of the people that I work with, um, but mm -hmm. also are connected to systemic injustices and inequities that lead to a lot of human-wildlife interactions being negative. Um, and so I've, I think that my identities have led me to have a much more holistic view and empathetic view of what mm -hmm. both people and wildlife are going through. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm curious mm -hmm. um, what, what you think about that and whether your identities have influenced your work in any way. Maybe uh, I I had a different experience because 
perhaps I've been more privileged, let's say. I'm a white, uh, cis, uh, homosexual guy in the Western world. And um, what happened to me was that perhaps I was I was not hiding, perhaps, I'm during my career, but I was kind of invisible, right? Like I'm also passing, so it's like, okay, I'm queer, but I don't know how to express this in my work. Um, I know there is also one thing that people state usually that is like, oh, but why do I have to put my queerness into my job, right? Like, I'm just working, it doesn't have to do anything about it. And I would say, yes, it does, because it's you, and you are doing that work. You are doing that research, and it does influence it, whether you know it or not. Maybe it doesn't have to be a specific queer issue that you know, but we are shaped the way we are, and the work we do is obviously shaped by that as well. I absolutely agree, and I feel like a lot of the pushback you're getting is, again, tied up to that Western science notion of objectivity, which yes. is fake and doesn't fake. exist. Um, we are subjective beings, and, and our backgrounds are very important. Absolutely. I agree so much with this. So queer folks have made a lot of gains in parts of the world, but not everywhere. So are there times when you have to be careful about how you present yourself? But maybe you can talk something about Kenya, right? Like, what is it like? It's been a really interesting experience and often um, psychologically harmful, I think, for me um, to work in countries where being queer is illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, now that I've made uh, at least one or two friends who I know are queer and are Kenyans, to to see what they're going through as well. Because, I I mean, yes, like a lot of my career and my work is based there. um, And I'm deeply embedded in Kenya. Um, but I, at the end of the day, can always walk away, right? And some people, yeah. um, you know, in our group and in wh- who I work with cannot walk away from, um, you know, where they live. Yeah. So I'm very grateful to be able to have that view of, of the two different ways of being and maybe start to see where I can um, tap into the change. Mm. Yeah, so I'd love as our, as our final question um, to ask, you know, there's probably somebody listening to this podcast who's interested in becoming a scientist or an explorer, um, but might be struggling to bring in their full self and be their full self, um, either because of safety reasons or because they're just unsure. Um, so what advice would you give those folks? Well, first I would say that um, please do apply for the grant. If you have an idea, please do it. Don't feel, don't feel like you are not valid to do it. Particularly, I would like to welcome trans people to to apply for grants, I'd say. Uh, I think this is an underrepresented group yeah, within the Explorer community. And we would love yeah, if, you would, if we could welcome some of these folks around. What do you say? What do you Absolutely. think, Christine? Yes. Please come join us. <laughs> <laughs> Christine, what would you say to your younger version of yourself um, if you could give her an, an advice? Yeah, I would. I think I would tell her that even though it might seem lonely um, to persist because there are communities of kaleidoscopic beings like yourself who care about nature or whatever their passion is that, that will support you um, and that are there for you and, and that we are here, right? So we're seeing increasing representation of folks with queer and other identities um, and that's wonderful, uh, but you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. There, There is a vast community ready to support you in what you do um, and support you as being a queer person and or a person of color. Um, so try not to feel alone, um, and, and we hope that we can represent ourselves enough to, to be there for you and for you to know where to look. If you like what you hear and you want to support more content like this, 
please rate and review us in your podcast app and consider a National Geographic subscription. That's the best way to support Overheard. Go to netgeo.com slash explore more to subscribe. There's a link in our show notes. And you can check out links to Christine's TikTok where she posts her Queers Natural series and Rudy's new film about the Canary Islands and its whistling language. Plus, see more Nat Geo stories about pride and the people pushing for equality. This week's Overheard episode is produced by Jacob Pinter. Brian Gutierrez is a senior producer. Our senior editor is Eli Chen. Our manager of audio is Carla Wills, who edited this episode. Our executive producer of audio is Devar Ardalan. Ted Woods sound designed this episode, and Hans Del Su composed our theme music. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. The National Geographic Society is committed to illuminating and protecting the wonder of our world and funds the work of National Geographic explorers Christine Wilkinson and Rudiger Ortiz Alvarez. Michael Tribble is the Vice President of Integrated Storytelling. Nathan Lump is National Geographic's Editor-in-Chief. And I'm your guest host, Dominique Hildebrand. Thanks for listening, and happy Pride! Happy Pride! I really want like confetti to be coming out while I say happy ride. <laughs> 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 yeah.